0: Welcome to Off The Wall, a podcast aimed at helping you answer the questions, what is the point of my wealth, and what steps can I take to make that vision a reality? Your host, David Armstrong, co-founder of Monument Wealth Management, and Jessica Gibbs, director of private wealth design at Monument, will tap into their over 25 years of combined experience in wealth
1: management to help you answer these challenging but important questions. Interested in learning more? Connect with us on Instagram, at Monument Wealth, and follow along at
0: monumentwealthmanagement.com. Now, here are your hosts, Dave and Jessica.
1: All right. Changing it up a little bit here on the Monument Off the Wall podcast. This is Dave Armstrong. I got Aaron and row with me today from the asset management team and w- guys why are we having so much fun today with the music in the beginning by the way cuz cowbell you know way to send the year out i
2: know i love it i love it Good stuff. Well, the reason
1: we're the reason we're having so much fun is because we are without adult supervision today Jessica my co-host will not be joining us today she's a little under the weather so that gives the three of us the opportunity to act like juveniles and do whatever we want to on the podcast and have some fun. But today, our program is going to be asset management year-end wrap-up. So you got the three of us on here, and we're going to talk about the markets and and just kind of review from a high level what's going on, what was going on, and just kind of talk about year-end. Now, it's December 20th, so... Things can and probably will change a lot over the last couple of trading days of the year, especially if the last two days of trading have been any example of <laughs> the volatility that we can have. And I woke up this morning, I saw the futures, and I said, "Man, if this is like the couple of days leading up to Christmas of 2018, I'm going to be really bummed." So, but we've been seeing some volatility lately, but for the most part, as of you know the 19th, we've seen some pretty good returns in the market, right, guys?
0: Yeah, it's been a good year to date as well. And thanks for having both Aaron and I on today.
1: Yeah. So I figured we could talk about some market returns. You know, for the most part, the U.S. stock market, year to date, up a little over 21%, probably a little under 21% if things close up the way they look like they're going to close up today. But, you know, pretty good returns for the market this year.
0: Let's just start there. Well, that's a great point, Dave. Which market? right? It's been an interesting year. It's been a lot of dichotomies between the winners and the losers. When you take a year like last year, 2020, nasty COVID crash, right? End of February into mid-March, all markets affected, all asset classes affected from commercial real estate, large caps, domestic, international, you name it. And then a strong rebound that was everywhere. This year, we've seen a big change in market character. So let me give you an example. Like, what am I talking about? Well, Dave, you said markets up you know, around 21% year to date. That's true for the S and P, but really take the other extreme emerging markets, which was, you know, we laugh as a team about this all the time. The prognosticators come out with their annual forecast at the beginning of the year. I mean, everybody was in line or overweight emerging markets. How much are they down year to date, Aaron?
2: Emerging markets, depending on which mark you're looking at, but just broadly high single digits.
0: Yeah, Latin America is down eight and a half. Emerging markets as an asset class is down four. So you compare that against the S and P up twenty one. That's a twenty five percent delta. So yeah, Dave, the market's been great, but you really got to figure out which market you're talking about. So pretty incredible split between the winners and the losers.
1: Yeah. So let's put a finer point on that, right? S and P five hundred up twenty one and change year to date, right? Dow more like sixteen seventeen. Then you you go all the way down and you start looking at emerging markets as defined by the Morgan Stanley, the MSCI index, right down 5.8%. So let's just call it six down 6%. So there's definitely a huge difference between the different market sectors. And you're absolutely right. If, and if you look at like percent off the high, you know, the emerging markets year to date, it's down 15% off of its all time high right? I mean, that's a lot. That's a big move. That's almost a bear market in emerging markets. And, you know, Russell 2000 until recently was doing well and is now down 11% off of its all-time high. So, and to put it into perspective, like the s and is down 3% off its all-time high and the Dow's down 4% off its all-time high. So there's a big, big difference between domestic and international stuff.
0: Yeah. And I think that an astute listener is going to say, why? We all look for stories. I think that's a really interesting question is, is why. Aaron's going to give the cool answer as to how we would trade it. We just look at momentum and flow, so we don't look for the story beforehand. So Aaron, I think you should walk through kind of what maybe you know our momentum-based strategies did with emerging markets this year. And then I'll give the kind of macroeconomic background as to how to reverse ascribe the story because they're very different, right? Following the news and managing money are different skill sets. So let's talk about the momentum first, Aaron, and then I'll talk about the macroeconomic backdrop
2: yeah so em's a a really interesting asset class because you'll you always hear people talking about the demographics of of places outside the us what that pretends for long-term growth you've got to have an allocation no matter what and of course we kind of take the opposite view there is which is we love emerging markets but we don't want to be in them when they're going down right like it's kind of trend following 101 so if you look at what we've done year to date with emerging markets. And we've, we've written about this a lot. We've talked with our clients about this a lot. If you go back to the beginning of this year, emerging markets were the single largest holding in our flexible asset allocation model. And Dave probably be a good thing if you kind of step in here and what's maybe remind our listeners what flexible asset allocation, which is a trend-following model, just very simply put one or two sentences, what that does.
1: Sure. So, the flexible asset allocation model, or sometimes we refer to it as FAA, is a model that can be allocated across stocks, bonds, and cash. And it uses six different scores to decide what the allocation should be between those different asset classes. And cash can be, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's conceivably cash could be 100% in that model, right, Aaron?
2: Correct. So we call that unconstrained. So flexible asset allocation can be stocks, it can be bonds, it can be cash, it can be 100% any of those things. But most typically, it's a mixture of all three. So do more of what's working, less of what's not. Stocks are going up, you want to be in stocks. Stocks aren't going up, they're going down, you want to be out of stocks. It's pretty simple. It's a little more complicated in practice, but on the surface, it's very simple. So going back to EM for a second, if you look at the beginning of this year, and actually going into the fourth quarter of 2020 will back it up even a little bit further. Emerging markets, believe it or not, were one of the strongest areas of the stock market, and because of that, were one of the largest weightings within our FAA model. I'm looking back to late 2020 and into early 2021. Um, nearly a third of our flexible asset allocation model, and we have a related stock only model that runs a similar concept, up to a third of those models were in emerging markets. And the trend deteriorated so swiftly in the first quarter of this year that by essentially April, we were completely out of emerging markets altogether. And what did that help us sidestep? I don't know if, if our listeners will remember what happened to emerging markets, particularly Chinese equities this summer, but they got absolutely you know, tanked thanks to what happened with the Chinese tech sector what the Communist Party was doing in terms of rethinking their, I've heard it characterized as rethinking their flirtations, their decades-long flirtations with, with Western-style capitalism. And then you also get the markets getting roiled because of what people were thinking was going to be some type of commercial real estate contagion, right? The Communist Party had spent the latter part of the, or the better part of the past decade or so, building out a, just an absolute ton of real estate and all that was being financed, not necessarily by private markets, but by the Chinese Communist Party. And it kind of came home to roost a little bit in terms of some contagion fears in that part of the market. So, but Ro, you made a really good point. And we've talked about this before too, but we're not experts at foreign policy or the intricacies of the Communist Party over in China. You know, we're not political experts by any means. So we didn't predict any of these These occurrences from happening per se, but the model saw something that was bubbling up underneath the surface. And we think it did a really good job of helping us avoid that, even though, as we said, we're not experts in this stuff, but we were still able to manage to avoid it. So,
0: yeah, I'll jump in. I mean, we're experts in trying to avoid falling knives. At the end of the day, emerging markets were going down and the US was going up. So we we made that trade. We didn't overthunk it beyond that. What's the real story? What's the story the journalists want to bite into? It's rates, and I'll do this quickly because this is a podcast about having fun and, and, and talking about the year in review, but what really drives emerging markets? You want to make a trade in EM discretionary instead of systematic the way we do? Look at interest rates. As goes, interest rates in the U.S. goes emerging markets. What does that mean? Well, look, coming into the year, the 10-year was what? 90, 91, 92 basis points. I'm pulling up a chart now. Now the 10-year one. I think it finished the year around there, Dave. You're right. Now it's at what 1.42. That's a pretty significant rise. Why is that relevant? Well, because emerging markets, non European, non US markets, actually, those governments float debt in US dollars to attract more buyers. You don't want to take both country risk and currency risk. So they float dollars, they float bonds rather in US dollars. If interest rates go up, marginal dollars, extra dollars in the economy, go towards paying interest instead of back into the economy. Don't overthink it beyond that. Rising rates in the US, bad for EA. Yeah. We didn't model rates, did we, Dave? But we modeled if things are going up, be in them. If things are going down, but that's the macroeconomic story behind the precipitous decline and drastic underperformance in emerging markets. Hey, rates went up in the U.S. Less dollars for those governments to plow back into their economies.
1: Right. And one of the things about the way we systematically run these portfolios is that we don't take decisions based on what we think you know should happen. We're looking at it and we're saying, hey, this is what is happening. And there's a big difference there because you can be right about something thematically and be wrong in the timing. So there was a lot of arguments out there saying that emerging markets and international stocks were going to do really really well this year and that thesis could continue to be correct but the timing of it was wrong. So in the meantime if you're investing in what's working like we're doing with the momentum, you don't have to really worry about the thesis being right or wrong. You're not going to hit the top or the bottom of a call, but you're at least going to be in what's working and not in It's not working. That sounded complicated, but-
0: No, I get what you're saying, right? Right. Because I I would frame it more like a professor though, is everyone will make that first order mistake, stepping up and saying, oh, look, emerging market, at the beginning of the year, emerging markets are cheaper than the US. The US is right. Let's go buy it. That's not a mistake, actually, because that's just being a conscious investor. I think the mistake investors make, professionals, investment committees, CIOs, and retail all make the same mistake. And Aaron, I'm blanking, but I think it was our September or October piece we penned together. If you loved it at 100, you'd love it at 80. I'm seeing more capital flows into emerging markets as it goes down. That's the real mistake to make. It's one thing to make a bad call, but it's another thing to keep buying on the way down.
2: This is a question too, sort of I'd pose poses to you as well, but how much of that do you think is sort of mechanical in terms of you know, institutional investors that because- EM has had such a rough go that are, they're underweight and they're having to rebalance going into year end. Do you think any of that's at play here?
0: Oh yeah. I love that. That's a whole podcast topic over in itself. But, and I tell you, this is what I think is different about the way we think about money, the way we talk about money, the way we touch money as a team versus others on Wall Street. If something goes down, they rebalance to bring it back up, right? So they keep buying more of it. We're not going to do that. We're going to wait for that asset to return to positive momentum. I'm going to speak for Dave and Aaron, and they may shake their head and you know pinch my nose after this, but we'd rather pay a higher price getting back in once the asset class has reestablished momentum, right? So if you have a 60-40 portfolio and stocks go down, you'll keep buying on the way down. You actually, what do you do here? And this is the secret part that most people don't realize. You increase your drawdown. You actually increase your risk when you do that. It's absolutely fascinating.
2: Yeah, some people seem to be, you know, especially on the institutional side, almost gluttons for punishment, right? And they have it all sort of built into the the mechanical nature of how they're supposed to rebalance i can tell you for a fact and i tell clients this all the time especially clients that have have invested in the flexible asset allocation model they ask me what should i expect here i can tell them what not to expect which is if something's going down we're not going to go buy it we're not going to go catch that falling knife so you shouldn't expect if i don't care if it's emerging markets i don't care if it's small caps i don't care if it's large caps if it's going down and going down in a hurry, you shouldn't expect us, at least by way of the flexible asset allocation model, to be going in and buying that and catching that falling knife. Well,
0: let's juxtapose because we keep talking about FAA, but you know that's a, a different kind of model and not everyone's going to do that. But even in, if you gave us a mandate to stay fully invested in equities, we run what's called tactical, that also get out of emerging markets. Just because you, you don't have the ability to say, well, I'm going to hold excess cash. some people don't like cash. Some people are truly in it for the 30, 40 year playing the long game. the same logic still works. Don't be in the things that are going up the fastest, even if in a market where everything is going up, in this case, EM was down, S&P was up, so it was an easy trade. I don't want people to think, oh well, I need to have some kind of a dynamic stock bond cash model to avoid EM. No, you just need to just be ask yourself a handful of simple questions. Is the asset class going up? Great? Is the asset class going up than the others? Because even in, in our models, our strategies where we are mandated to be fully invested, we sidestep the end as well. So I don't want to think there's some alchemy here on our end. <laughs> there's not.
1: No. And let's take a second because we've been talking a lot about top level, but let, let's just do a quick review of just the sectors of the SP 500 because what's been happening there has been pretty interesting as well. You know, the SP 500 by itself is obviously around 500 stocks. For technical reasons, sometimes there's more than 500 in it, but let's just assume for the sake of this podcast that there's 500 stocks in the S&P 500 at any given time, right? I mean, a lot of these returns that you're seeing in the S&P 500 isn't coming from 500 stocks. It's coming from five or seven. You know, those big those big names, the NVIDIA, Google, Microsoft, Apple, Tesla, Facebook, Amazon, Those are responsible for a ton of the return in the S&P 500. And then you got 493 other companies like, you know, just kind of carrying their own water down there. So from a high level perspective, the S&P 500 is being dominated. The performance in the S&P 500 is being dominated by, by those big, big names that we all know and hear in the news all the time. And what's also really interesting about the S&P 500 is that, you know, 25 of the most profitable companies make up around 40 to 45% of the S&P 500. So not only are those five names driving, but, you know, those 25 biggest names are a huge component of the index. But then the S&P 500 will also break down into sectors, and each one of those has their own weight too. So for example, the S&P 500 technology sector is about, I'm going to round up here to 27% of the weight. Of the entire S and P 500, so technology is really swaying a lot. But then, if you look at the year-to-date return on technology, it's thirty percent. So yeah, I guess you can make the argument that some of the other sectors are really dragging the S and P 500 down. If technology is, you know, 27 percent of the weight, and it's carrying a thirty percent return, what's going on with the other sectors? And they're all positive for the year. The worst-performing sector is up around thirteen and a half percent, right? But you've got – you would think that technology, because that's all you hear about in the news, is crushing it, and I'm going to round up technology at 30% year-to-date. Well, I think you guys probably know the answer to this, but what's what's the highest returning sector in the S&P 500 today, up year-to-date today?
0: Yeah, surprisingly. It's energy. Yeah, it's
1: the sector I hate the most. It's the sector that I refuse to let you guys talk to me about,
0: right? So there's two teaching points, and then I know Aaron wants to jump in, but there's two kind of teaching points. I think initially – Dave started with a conversation about market breadth. And so I want to give listeners something to Google. Breath is a way of measuring the internal structure of the S&P 500, how many are going up or down. Sectors, the phrase that Dave used, are the 11 different sectors of the S&P 500, energy, real estate, financials, technology, healthcare, materials, etc. So there's a difference between the two. But what's interesting is, as Dave is linking them, energy, we just said, is the best performing sector year to date at 48%, 49%, which is shocking but it's not moving the S and P shouldn't the S and P be up more because it's only two and a half percent of the, of the index. So it's, it's a really interesting market and it parallels the discussion we just had about emerging markets. I just want to teach a little here for a second and link the concept. There's just big winners and losers inside of the index, just like there's big winners and losers on the macro landscape. This isn't a traditional bull where everything is going up and everybody's a genius. You're seeing, you know, a lot of single stocks down, and a lot of countries and regions completely not participate. It's a very intriguing place,
1: right? Yeah, and you also interesting over the past week. What sector of the S and P five hundred is down the most? Energy, but it's not having a huge impact because it's only like you said, bro. It's only a two, two and a half, two and change, two and high change percent weighting in the S and P five hundred. So, and of course, that's all oil driven, you know. So, just kind of some interesting stuff going on underneath the surface. Also, real estate because. You know, people, the real estate sector, as it relates to individual securities, isn't a newsworthy sector on a daily basis, right? Like, Kramer isn't in there talking about real estate stocks as much as he is, like, all the other big stocks, too. That's up, you know, the real estate sector is up 40% year-to-date. So, but again, you know, to your point, that also carries a, you know, mid-2% weighting in the S&P 500, like 2.7 or something. So, Kind of interesting to look at this. And then and then obviously, you know, financials has also been an interesting sector to be watching this year as well. But yeah, I mean, the, okay, I'll just rattle them off. The top five performing sectors out of the 11, energy is number one, then real estate, then financials, then technology ticks in at number four, and then healthcare. And then the worst is consumer defensive, which is kind of interesting because it's actually been doing pretty well in the month of December and actually this whole quarter. It hasn't been horrible, but this is the whole thing about like just being what's working.
2: I do want to, for a second, circle back around to the concept of market breadth, and there is there's a lot of ways to unpack it. And I've got a, a tweet up in front of me that someone sent me the other day that I think is really worthwhile to look at some of these numbers because it really illuminates what we're talking about here. So. It, Let's unpack the U.S. markets more broadly and look at something like the Russell 3000 index, right? So that's going to include your, your large cap. So everything in the S&P 500 plus your, your mid and your small cap stocks as well. So at the time, this was over the last week, the Russell 3000 was off call it a little over 3% from its 52 week high. And actually, it's all time high at the same time, right, because it's been making new all time highs. To the point of breadth and looking at what's driving it, it's, stocks haven't been going up in lockstep. In fact, if you look at the Russell 3000, there are close to 2,300 stocks or over 75% of that index at the time of this tweet that were down 10% or more from their respective highs. Over 60% were down 15% or more. 20%, I'm sorry, 50% were down 20% or more. And you keep going down if you go all the way down to the lowest category of this you've got over close to 20 percent of the entire index is down 50 percent or more from their 52-week highs so what is that telling you it's telling you that a very small subset of stocks in that universe and i think people are as we've talked about are familiar with this in the s p 500 the fan mags the facebook the amazon apples googles etc those are really carrying this market and you'll often hear people that that use technical analysis to describe the performance of the markets, talking about the proverbial generals, right? The large stocks that are supposed to be leading the charge, what they're doing and what their soldiers, every other stock in the index, what those guys are doing. Well, here recently is the S and P, you know, through the last week or so had been making all time highs, the generals, the mega cap tech stocks, those were making the new all time highs, but what were everyone else in the, the entire universe doing? They were retreating, so to speak. And so that's what we're talking about with market breadth. Is this market's being driven by a handful of very large names. And it doesn't necessarily pretend great things when when markets are making all-time highs and you don't have a lot of this participation or really deep breath as they call it.
1: Let's kind of transition out of that and let's talk about some of the volatility in rates. Cause Ro, you were talking about. we started talking about interest rates and how it's driving emerging markets and everything, but let, let's get back to the issue of volatility in interest rates, and specifically, kind of drawing back onto a last podcast that we did, and definitely a lot of commentary we've been having. But what does that volatility in rates mean about bonds, and are they safe? And you know, what have they done this year?
0: Yeah, it's kind of a nice, deep, loaded question to talk about volatility in and of itself in a market. Let's step back. Why does volatility exist in markets? It's when there's a mismatch of buyers and sellers and of time frames when there's different views being expressed. Volatility exists in markets to move stock, or in this case, bonds, from weak hands to strong hands. And so when you see a market exhibit volatility, there's uncertainty. There's a lot of uncertainty in rates this year, like we mentioned in emerging markets, but even domestically, what does that mean? Well, we didn't know if the Fed was going to raise rates. They didn't about face last week. And now the dot plot is for three raises next year. Rates, as everybody knows, it affects everything from your mortgage, the price of your mortgage, to whether or not a large corporation like ExxonMobil can, can build a new you know, $300 billion facility. Because volatility is going up, though, to Dave's point, how does that affect our clients and our strategies? Two things. It's, it's informed our belief that bonds may not be the place to hang out if there is a slowdown in the economy or the market corrects. Typically, the beauty of, at least historically, of a 60-40 portfolio, 60% stocks, 40% bonds, was that in the down years, the bonds would hold up. In this case, now you never want to say this time's different. That being said, there's more risk than normal in bonds because the interest rates are so low and the Fed has begun to taper. If there's a pullback in the market, we may not see... Bonds catch a bid, meaning price go up and yields come back down. We could also see just a flight to cash, in which case bonds are risky.
2: Actually, you're seeing that today, Ro. You know, as we're recording this podcast, you know, the S&P 500 is off 1% plus today. It's actually down close to 1.3%. But what's happening to bonds? Looking at long bonds, as you had mentioned, in a, quote, normal market environment, whatever that would be, a traditional 60-40 portfolio, you'd have the S&P 500 down over 1%. If you had an allocation to long-duration treasuries, so think of it owning treasury bonds with a 20-plus year final maturity, you would see those typically be green on the day, right? That should be a positive return for you. We're seeing more and more days where the S&P 500 and other equity markets are in the red, and bonds are following them down there as well. So you're not getting that traditional protection from what people would consistently classify as a a safe haven asset class.
1: Yeah. If anybody listening wants to get An idea of what we're talking about. I'll just use very simply the iShares 7 to 10-year treasury bond ETF, and the ticker for that is IEF, so like India Echo Foxtrot. And you look at that, and it tracks the 7 to 10-year treasuries, right? Okay. The last time it printed an all-time high was in late July 2020. And since then, has pretty steadily just kept going down and down and down from the end of July 2020 till now. It's down 5.8%. So when you think about bonds and do they provide you some level of safety, I would argue that not over the past year and a half they haven't. You've lost almost 6% of your money in the 7 to 10-year Treasury bond market just because of the the way interest rates have moved. So the way people think about bonds being safe I think people look at them and they say they're safe. Well, sort of, until you need to sell them. So if you needed to liquidate that portion of your portfolio that was invested in the IEF to raise some capital for something, you're going to be selling your bonds at almost a 6% loss from where you bought them for and not really offset by that much interest income because they're just simply not yielding a whole lot of interest income. So, yeah, I mean, bonds, <laughs> bonds are not necessarily safe from the way people think they are. They will go down in value as interest rates go up. And I mean, that's essentially your loss in the in the seven to 10-year treasury bond market from the end of July 2020 is on par with the loss that you would have seen by being in the international market. And not so much the emerging markets, because emerging markets is down 15% over that time, but still... A third of the loss of the emerging markets. I mean, that's not great.
0: No, it's it's not great. And then again, we went, we talked about earlier first order thinking and second order thinking. A lot of people will buy individual bonds and say, I don't mind the volatility if I hold this bond to maturity, right? We hear that a lot. And so I don't mind one or 18 months of, you know, 12 months or 18 months of the downdraft because I'm going to hold this bond to maturity. It's going to come back to par. Well, without getting technical, a lot of these bonds were bought at a premium. But even if you have that kind of a, quote, iron jaw, that kind of a long-term vision. You still have the stealth issue. And the bigger issue with bonds is right now inflation is running so hot. I don't want to go into detail here because we did this on a podcast earlier. But if you're getting 5 and 6% CPI prints and your bonds are yielding 1%, even if you held those bonds to maturity and you weathered the storm, you did what everybody teaches you to do, you know, buy and hold, stay the course, stay the course, you ended up with less purchasing power, less money than you had seven years ago. So there's two risks to bond that I think it's important. And this year has shown them both. This has been a, a really, I think, an episodic year for bond investors and to step back and say, "Whoa, does this really fit what I'm trying to do? I'm taking a ton of price risk. I'm not getting yield and I'm falling behind inflation. And this should be a gut check time for someone who's, over 30 to 40% allocated to fixed income.
2: I think what I'm hearing from both of you guys is you've, we've painted a picture on why you need to own bonds in the first place, but for various reasons, bonds have been a pretty bad place to be. What the upshot of this is, bonds aren't, at least at this point, a great buy and hold investment, if that's what you guys are telling me, that if I were to go buy you know, treasuries today with inflation doing what it's doing, with the Federal Reserve doing what it's doing, likely not a, a rosy environment over the next two, three, four, five years or so. But what I think we've as another kind of layer to peel back on the onion is we've talked about why you should own bonds. We've also talked about why buy and hold isn't great, but there are periods when to own bonds, right. And so Ro, if, if you can kind of walk us through that, you know we've kind of painted a bearish picture on bonds, but I think it's it's not a surprise. We do tell clients you need to own them. Just not all the time. So, can you walk us through that a little bit on on how that would work for clients that would work
0: with us? Sure. I'll step back first and give the cheat answer because, you know, at the end of the day, Monument is a planning shop. You've heard Emily, you've heard Jessica, you've heard Heaven. We have the best planners around. When it fits inside of your plan, if you only need to make 3% to hit your goals, then you should buy bonds yielding 3%. Step back and don't overthink it. From an asset management perspective, though, you want to own bonds when any handful of these. Individually or jointly exist. First, bond prices are actually trending up, AK yields are trending down, which has been happening really for on and off for 30 years. The last eight months, we've seen a reversal, but when yields are trending down, right? but now we know we gave you data, yields are 50 to 60% higher than they were just eight months ago, nine months ago. So, yeah, when they're exhibiting positive price momentum. Second, the other time to own bonds, believe it or not, and you may get shorter duration is when equities are in a pervasive bear market, when equities are trending down, bonds are a decent place to be. This may be a little nuanced now because the Fed is intervening, but historically, look at the 2000 to 2002, you know, pullback, that 50% crash in the market, 2008, nine, Some corporates are affected because we had the great recession, but bonds weren't a bad place to be when equities are, are trending down as well. Lastly, and this is stealth because we really haven't had it in the US much except for two quarters briefly in the heart of the 08-09 recession. When there's deflation in the market, bonds are the best place to be. Equities get crushed, commercial real estate gets crushed, but bonds, you get a fixed cash flow stream that's worth more each day because the general price of goods and services are going down in deflationary environments. We're we're not the economy in the US isn't structured similar to that of Japan, which had deflation for really two decades, right? They have a demographic headwind, they have a cultural Import export issue, but deflation would be the other from an intellectual perspective.
1: Yeah, you know, I like the point that you made about you know when inflation's running really hot, your bonds just aren't even keeping up, and you're you're losing real purchasing power. Okay, and you were talking about CPI, where you know kind of where it is right now, latest about six point eight percent print, very high. If you go back, I don't know, geez, even ten years, I can't remember the last time in the past ten years that we've seen a CPI print anywhere north of 2.75 maybe at the highest I'm thinking I mean I'm kind of testing my memory here but I don't I don't remember put it this way I don't remember CPI hitting a three handle in since back in 2010 11 12 sometime back in there maybe even more so let's just say that inflation's averaging between two and a half and three percent which I think is is a high range I think it's more closer to 2.5 percent and your bonds are yielding 1.5, I mean, you're still losing money, even in normal inflation times. So I just come back to like, people feel safe in bonds, but they're actually losing money.
2: Here's a little bit of a a nuanced take on this, though. And that is absolutely, from an academic standpoint, 100% accurate. You've got a bond yielding 1.5%. You've got inflation, we'll call it 5. Like It's not a secret. Like You're losing out on real purchasing power, right? And especially as rates rise, you're losing not only on a on a real return basis, but nominally your bonds are going down. I think what people need to keep in mind though is bonds do serve a place in helping people not to do stupid things, right? So great, bonds suck, so what are you gonna do? What do a lot of people do? They typically will go reach for return, right? So they'll put more and more and more into stocks. And so my worst fear is for someone who would typically be a bond investor, or at least have a large degree of bonds in their portfolio, is they reach for a larger allocation to stocks. And then when stocks gets you know, hit in the face, they panic and sell. Right. So you tell me what's worse, you know, maybe losing a couple percentage points over the next couple of years on a real return basis for bonds or putting the vast majority of your portfolio that you shouldn't necessarily do into stocks and getting hit with a 40 percent drawdown and panic selling right? You're losing in both both instances, but one scenario is a lot better than the other, right?
1: Totally. 100% agree with that. And here's a very simple saying. Everybody knows it, right? Buy low, sell high. Well, if you like the idea of buy low, sell high, which I'm assuming most people would, well, then you can wait until there is a better time to buy bonds. Because when interest rates go up, the price of bonds will go down. And if- bonds ever get back to an area like where I remember them in the late 1990s, early 2000s, where like the tenure was at four, four and a half, five percent And you could get municipals coming in there around just maybe a percentage point lower pre-tax on yield to maturity basis. If you like those yields, when they get back there, then buy them and hold them and clip that coupon forever. But that is not the scenario right now. If you, buy, if you go out and buy a 10-year straight off the rack, you're captive to that interest rate payment for ten straight years, or you've got to sell the bond. And if you sell the bond, you're at market rates. And if interest rates going up, you're going to lose money on it. So, I like our saying. You know, our whole thing with FAA, the, the flexible asset allocation model, is we like to rent bonds rather than own them. We rent them when we need them, and then we, you know, don't renew our lease <laughs> for the for the apartment full of bonds when we're done with them. So we're month to month with bonds. We either pay rent or we move out. It's a great way to use bonds appropriately, but not be married to them. But yeah, and, and we've got some other podcasts on bonds too. And I just published a blog recently about my thoughts on inflation, which boy, have I gotten some pushback on on emails about how wrong I am. I'm sticking my guns on it. But if you want to read something that may be a little controversial, go ahead and find that blog from a couple of weeks ago about where I talk about whether or not our inflation is transitory or not. And I won't give away what I say, but... lot of people don't agree with me. We'll see. I will admit if I'm wrong, but all right. So as we're kind of wrapping up here, you know, we're pushing the 40 minute mark and I know every single one of our listeners are still with us for at least another 10 minutes, but I mean, some surprises from 2021, let's do a little quick, like, you know, on the spot lightning round here. What were some of the surprises from 2021?
2: Go. Yeah, I'll go ahead. I've got a couple and I think Rose got some as well. You know, I can't come on a podcast and and not talk about a little bit of gold. I've written before that I as long as we're a not going to talk about
1: <laughs> energy here. With it.
2: <laughs> I've gotten a bit of a bad reputation at Monument since I've been here. That I've been known as the quote unquote gold guy. You never want to be known as the insert whatever guy, but unfortunately that's where we are. But having said that, I'll say you know gold is underperformed this year, year to date. It's down five six percent, even though inflation has been has been printing you know, 20, 30 year you know, highs in that regard. Well, of course, why is that a surprise? Well, everyone thinks of gold as a traditionally safe haven asset in the face of inflation. That just hasn't been the case. There's a lot of reasons why that might be. I think some of the more popular narratives out there are something like the emergence of cryptocurrencies, of Bitcoin, Ethereum, all the other you know, cryptocurrencies out there. Are taking share away taking flows away from some money that would otherwise go into gold there's no way to prove that but i think that's a pretty good narrative so that's a a surprise for me this year is what gold's done despite really hot inflation and then secondarily bank stocks you know bank stocks have been actually a pretty good place to be this year you can actually probably chalk that up to earlier on in 2021 what happened with the yield curve going back to bonds for a second. Dave, looking at your ticker IEF of seven to 10-year bonds, if you look at TLT, which is a measure of 20-plus-year treasury bonds, you know, those sold off pretty good in the earlier half of the year. So, you got a pretty good steepening of the yield curve. That's typically a good sign for banks because they will, you know, borrow at the short end of the curve to lend long. So, that's been a, a nice surprise this year. And so, believe it or not, bank stocks going back all the way to fourth quarter of 2020 after the election really caught a caught a nice bid. And you hear us talk about momentum a bunch. There's a really popular, actually, it's the largest ETF that tracks momentum stocks. Back earlier this year, that momentum fund, which had typically been really heavy into technology, cut technology and bought a lot of bank stocks. So that was interesting this year. Those are my two gold and bank stocks. And then Ro, I think you, you've got a couple as well that we we tend to talk about on a, a daily basis, at least we have here over the last month or so.
0: Yeah, I'll do this quickly because I do want to get to Dave's final question that he had mentioned earlier is what do we do with this info? But the big surprises here today, I already mentioned emerging markets. That was pretty surprising. No one thought rates were going up. No one thought the cheapest asset class would get cheaper. And From my perspective, the other thing that to look for that was surprising is – the character of the sell off the last 6 weeks has been different than the previous two I and mean, this is a really interesting teaching moment on on how to read the tape how to understand the message of the market when the market sells off if the best performing sector sell off less meaning if tech was leading and it sold off less it's probably just a garden variety correction but if during a sell off you see low beta meaning lower risk stocks Procter & gamble church and dwight You know, kind of consumer staples and utilities lead and actually be positive when the market's selling off. That's usually a precursor to more volatility or an even a larger correction. And in the last six weeks, Dave already went over the data, but we've seen that. That is a big shift in this correction versus the previous two or three corrections. I mean, you're seeing consumer staples. What were they up? I think six percent of the last month alone. Utilities are up five and a half. Healthcare is up four and a half. Give or take. Which is very different. And to Aaron's point about breath waning, these jointly do say that. But volatility may be here to stay, despite, you know, accommodate accommodative Fed. Those are interesting to me.
1: Yeah, I'll tell you that. My biggest surprise was in the face of rising inflation, how well the dividend aristocrats continue to raise their dividend payouts. Because I would have expected there to be less dividend increasing than there was because ostensibly everything's more expensive, you know. Input pricing into things is more expensive, and corporate America has done a great job of managing their expenses and their profitability. And those dividend aristocrats, as, as we know, it's you know we talk about dividend aristocrats in a row. You've talked about them a lot in a previous podcast. But those stocks that keep raising their dividends—how how many years in a row is a dividend aristocrat? It's like twenty years, right? 25. 25. So for 25 years, a dividend aristocrat is classified as a company that has increased its dividend every single year for the for at least the past 25 years. I kind of thought, I didn't think anybody would drop off that dividend aristocrat list, but I figured that their dividend increases would be a lot less. And geez, just in the past couple weeks, we've seen CVS increase their dividend by 10%, right? We saw waste management increase their dividend by 13%. We saw SEI, increase their dividend by 8%. Those are stocks that we talk about a lot in, in Monument. We own them in our dividend portfolio.
2: You're missing the big one, Dave. What was the big one? You're missing the really big one.
1: I said waste management, Aaron.
2: No, 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 no. Go back to the. We're talking sectors. Right? Iron Mountain. Basically. Iron
1: Mountain. <laughs> <laughs> Dave's favorite stock. Don't get emotional about it. Like, don't get like,
0: emotional about stocks. If I Dave's.
1: have a band of things, it's like I hate energy and I'll talk about Iron Mountain all day long. So that, that's my range of. No, Aaron of wants to take you to T Row Price. Oh, oh yeah. That's I right. wouldn't even. What was I Rowe wouldn't Rowe even. Prices?
2: Actually, I wasn't even talking t you. I was talking about Nucor. They they oh, raised yeah. their dividend oh, close yes. to 25%. That was like a
0: plus 20%. Yeah. T Row's was 22 this year. I think 20 this year, 22 last year, and 18 the year before. So, you know, by owning these dividend aristocrats, I know we've done a podcast on it, but I want to spend 30 seconds here. It's the solution to part of the challenge that Aaron mentioned and you mentioned, Davis. Okay, well, you don't want to take the volatility in bonds, but you don't want to lose purchasing power. You don't want to take a big drawdown. Well, you're going to have to take some volatility. But if you move instead of from bonds into tech or something high flying and something risky, but into the really boring stuff, you can have that kind of a cash flow increase. You've had roughly a 60% increase in your passive cash flow into your price in three years. Right, Raymond James, 31% increase. I mean, the the numbers you're right are nuts, but I don't want people to feel trapped that you either have to be bonds or something hot, something sexy, right? There's ways to, Aaron and I use this phrase a lot in our our talks, there's ways to turn the market into your private personal ATM, right? It's your own ATM machine. How do you want to interface with it? You can choose that adventure. And one of the best ways to hedge against inflation And maybe make your capital work a little more efficiently for you relative to bonds. So buy really boring stuff. Look, nothing's wrong with Coca-Cola here. I mean, they're they're still going to sell a beverage, you know, what, two beverages every second, three beverages every second. You're talking about 63 years of paying and raise a dividend. Hey, look, it's better than bonds. And you're getting the inflation adjusted income.
1: Yeah. I always like the way you say it, which is the great thing about owning a dividend is if you look at it like your, your paycheck and you go into your annual review and your boss comes in and says you're getting a 30% raise next year, you'd be psyched, right? Most people would be psyched by the 5% raise. So when you buy these stocks that are paying dividends and they're increasing the cash that they're spinning out by 10, 15, 20%, think of it like if you got that in a pay raise, you'd be pretty psyched. So
0: Yeah, boring works.
1: In two yeah, words, boring it works. does. Boring works. It does. So that was my big surprise. But, you know, row back to your comment about my comment, about Aaron's comment, about my comment way back in the beginning, if anybody remembers what it was, it was like, it's like, okay, great. Yeah. It's, right, right. it's like, okay, great. So what? What do we do with this kind of information? Well, I'll lead off on, you know, what's the conclusion essentially is what I'm getting at here, which is here's my conclusion. I'm going to really shock everybody here because this is some breathtaking stuff. You heard it here first. You got to be diversified. You know, like as boring and simple as that sounds, there is an elegance in that simplicity. That just works all the time. And I go back to those five stocks that are carrying the S&P 500. You know, if you're just invested in those five stocks and you're you're up 30% instead of the 21% of the entire index, well, I have this philosophy that that knife cuts both ways. And so not being diversified, you know, it's going to come back someday and bite you. So my conclusion, what to do with this kind of information is, hey, if you've been in those five stocks and you have been over allocated to high-risk asset classes and you have made a lot of money, I don't care if it's Bitcoin or Ethereum, whatever it is, you should consider taking some profits right now and diversifying away and capturing your gains. Because if you just keep loading the boat on those things, and you look at what happened back in 1999 and 2000 with some of those high flyers. I came into the business at that time, and I just know you don't want to be there. So my big thing about what to do with this information is run yourself a fire drill and ask yourself, if my portfolio went down 20%, from where it is right now. If the Dow Jones went from where it is right now to around 28,000, would you be laying awake at height? And if you are, you need to sell down to the sleeping level and diversify. That's mine. Ro, what do you got?
0: You know, I kind of take two ideas and merge them into one, but I think stick with what works. History has been a good guide for us. Inflationary environments, we know what does well. We've talked about it at nauseum. dividend growth, not going to go over it again. For those looking for a money manager or, or sort of sizing their own up, the first half of this discussion today i thought was very insightful about how the most of wall street thinks look at what's cheap let's asset allocate versus how you know we think is do more of what's working worship at the altar of momentum and that has really served us well so for me if you're a retail investor listening to this get smart on that we mentioned it in a few other podcasts there's books on it email us we want to educate people but the way to win in this game is not to make the most money on the way up, but it's to cut off the left tails, cut off the losses, and you do very, very well. So what, what do you do with this info? Yeah, stick with what works, boring works, and two, get smart on Momo.
1: Yeah, I agree. Aaron, take us home.
2: Yeah, I'd say my biggest you know, takeaway here and what to do with the info is just have a plan and stick to it you know, religiously. That's what I really like about concepts like trend following and, and flexible asset allocation. Make no bones about it. Flexible asset allocation, trend following isn't perfect. In fact, there was going to be times when it's out of favor, when it loses money. But the thing I really like about it is these types of systems, systematic investing, there's no chance to second guess yourself, right? So if you have a plan, you know what you're going to be doing, just stick with the plan and let it do its thing. You have to give a system enough time. In order for it to come into favor and to order to work its magic it's not going to happen over a single month over a single quarter or even a single year you've got to be doing this over over cycles right you've got to be doing it over multi-year periods so just stick with a plan and be systematic and unemotional about things and dave to your point i love the concept of selling down to the sleeping level if you do have a a level of risk where you can't sleep at night get to where, where you can and otherwise, just have a system in place and let the system do its thing.
1: Yeah, exactly. And hey, listen, if you made a lot of money, pay your taxes and diversify because a lot of time that tax tail can wag that dog pretty hard and make sure you're you're not doing that. So, anyway, it's been a great podcast. Good end of the year going on here, you know, and a lot of fun catching up with you guys. And I like the fact that we uh, we kept it together without Jessica supervising us and you know, keeping us in line. I think we did a pretty good job. We stayed out of trouble. So with that, everybody have a great holiday season and we will catch up with you after the new year with another episode of off the wall. So with that, Aaron, Dave and Ro are saying sayonara for the year and see you in 2022. All right, guys. Good time. Good time. All right. Well, you guys have a great week yourself and, uh, we'll catch up again. I love doing these podcasts and I know you guys do too. So let's uh let's catch up with a uh what to do in 2022. All right. All right take guys. Take it easy guys. All right. Take it easy.